Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors in over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we'll take a look at the more serious headlines. We'll also take a look at the lighter side of the news. We'll share an interview of the week with Reverend Moore, who is co-author of The Next Jihad, Stop Christian Genocide in Africa. And we'll talk about why November 21st is so important. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. We're glad to have you with us. Well, Senator Mitt Romney took to Twitter late Thursday night to launch a dramatic shot across the bow of President Trump's legal challenge of the 2020 election. Romney tweeted, having failed to make even a plausible case of widespread fraud or conspiracy before any court of law, the president has now resorted to overt pressure on state and local officials to subvert the will of the people and overturn the election. It is difficult to imagine a worse, more undemocratic action by a sitting American president. End quote. Well, Romney's office said that after the tweet that uh, it goes without saying that applying political pressure to local officials not to, to certify cast ballots is outside the bounds of any regular legal challenge, which is a reference to reports that Trump reached out to two GOP canvassers in Michigan's Wayne County after a tense deadlock to certify ballots there. Romney and Trump have not been in a good relationship. Romney said that he did not vote for Trump in 2020, but did vote to, to convict him for abusing presidential powers earlier this year at the president's impeachment trial. Trump has called Romney a loser and has mocked him over his 2012 election loss to former President Obama. Romney's tweet came after Rudy Giuliani, Trump's personal attorney, made the case for Trump's legal challenge and a fiery news conference on Capitol Hill. Giuliani pressed Obama's election challenge case in a very fiery conference with the legal team. Tucker Carlson says it's time for Sidney Powell to show us her evidence. Meanwhile, Pfizer and its German partner BioNTech intend to file for emergency use authorization at the FDA for its COVID-19 vaccine today. Health and Human Service Secretary Alex Azar said yesterday, two vaccines, each with 95 percent efficacy, rivaling the 98 percent efficacy of our measles vaccine produced in some of the largest vaccine clinical trials ever conducted in history. Over 40,000 patients in each of these clinical trials demonstrating good safety profiles. Azar said during a coronavirus task force briefing at the White House. The U.S. recorded more than 185,000 new coronavirus cases on Thursday. Reuters reported that the number of those hospitalized in the U.S. has increased by 50 percent in the past two weeks to nearly 79,000. Cities and states have imposed new lockdown orders in an effort to stop the spread. Meanwhile, in other developments, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says that we need to pay people to stay home to get coronavirus under control. Wow. And coronavirus is out of control in Alabama, according to health officials. Rand Paul says new lockdowns are completely arbitrary. And Dr. Fauci calls on Americans to put to rest the idea that COVID-19 vaccine was rushed in any way. Martha McAllen tangled with the American Federation of Teachers president, Randy Weingarten, on Thursday night over New York City's decision to close public schools and in-person instruction. 
City officials announced Wednesday that schools would be closed indefinitely starting Thursday after the seven-day average coronavirus infection rate for the five boroughs ticked up above 3%. Weingarten acknowledged that while evidence has shown in-person classes have not been super-spreading events, the problem is that schools are not impervious to all that is going on on the outside. A Biden transition advisor wants Congress to probe or wanted Congress to probe Justice Kavanaugh and Trump and uh, Chinese President Xi are planning to meet at a virtual Asia Pacific forum in the trade as this trade spat endures. A New Jersey Democratic congressman has called for Trump to be tried for crimes against the United States. And Vice President Pence is campaigning today in the crucial Georgia runoffs. A new squad member is suggesting Biden needs to pay minority communities back after their election support. Well, Mr. Mnuchin has commented on the pandemic lending program, sending stocks lower, and Biden is teasing his Treasury pick as imminent. Mortgage rates are breaking a new record with economic slump continuing. Well, California's uh, governor um, has issued a month-long stay-at-home order exempting entertainment uh, industry uh, players. The tweet from Gavin Newsom, due to the rise of Hashtag COVID-19 cases. California is issuing a limited stay-at-home order. Non-essential work and gatherings must stop from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. in counties in the purple tier. This will take effect at 10 p.m. on Saturday and remain for one month. Together, we can flatten the curve again. But he made a deal with his rich friends in uh, the entertainment industry, exempting them. From Red State's own California resident, Jennifer Van Lahr, do you know how many COVID deaths Ventura County has had in the last 14 days? Zero. None. Zip. Zilch. Nada. Out of the 174 deaths over the duration of the pandemic, 138 were over 65 years old, 28 were 45 to 64, Seven were 25 to 44 and one 18 to 24. Why are we shut down? Get our kids back to school. Well, Georgia Senate candidate Ossoff is now dodging questions about his fellow Democrat Warnock support of anti-Semitic preacher Jeremiah Wright. The Senate hopeful John uh, Ossoff, who has repeatedly referred to himself as fellow Democrat Raphael Warnock as a team in Georgia's Senate runoff, dodged questions on Warnock's uh, longtime support for anti-Semitic pastor Reverend Jeremiah Wright. Kimberly Strassel points out that Republican activists remain fixated on the presidential results, pouring heart, money and time into litigation and recounts. In doing so, they risk losing a crucial battle, the Georgia Senate runoffs. Donald Trump's campaign is within its rights to question the results, but the prospect of success is growing minimal. And if the president does come uh, come up short, uh, the only thing standing between Democrats and dominance of Washington is the Peach State results January 5th. Meanwhile, from Jack Fowler, as there is uh, much talk of the radical Georgia Democrats claim that Americans cannot serve both God and the military, it is worth recalling that there is, in fact, a category of Americans military chaplains who must rate at uh, uh, an extra dose of enmity from the controversial wannabe senator. Hundreds of chaplains of all faiths, as many as 419 since the Civil War, are believed to have died in the line of duty, killed in action, or uh, dying in prisoner of war camps, often while attending to the wounded and the dying. Well, the CDC director says schools are safe. He concluded K through 12 schools can operate with face to face learning and they can't do it. Uh, they can rather do it safely and they do it 
uh, responsibly. But the teachers' unions are still trying to keep them closed. Tim Carney points out, as the scientific consensus bills that closing schools is not a prudent intervention, my county government tells uh, private schools they should close. This is a county executive, Mark Elric, and the health officer, Travis Gales. Philip Klein points out, this is insane. In this letter, they... uh, concede low levels of transmission at schools, but say if cases go up outside of schools, it could lead to more cases in schools, which could also lead to disruptions in learning, as if it isn't disruptive to close all the schools. Biden is still talking about a national mask mandate. Meanwhile, Victor Davis Hansen noticed the pandemic certainly no longer serves as an election lever to demagogue President Trump as the um, uh, a veritable killer. Apparently, that's no longer important. Well, Black Lives Matter to the Democratic Party, defund the police, not the problem. A half dozen Black Lives Matter leaders said in interviews that they felt disrespected and frustrated by the debate over the slogan, defund the police, instead of the fundamental policy pushed by protesters for systematic changes to policing. They said Democrats didn't have a strategy to fight against GOP attack ads and are now blaming them for not doing the party's job for it. Meanwhile, an NFL quarterback's wife is complaining of the dictatorship that we all call Michigan. Kelly Stafford took to Instagram to vent about the new restrictions Governor Gretchen Whitmer put in place. Limitations were placed on indoor gatherings, indoor dining restaurants and bars. And from the New York Post, I'm so over it. I'm over living in a dictatorship that we call Michigan. She posted to her Instagram um, story Thursday, if we are at risk, if you are at risk, do not leave your house until there is a vaccine. But shutting down all these small businesses, things that people have worked their life for, shutting them down again is not the answer because they will um, not make it. So once we are able to leave our house, once this dictatorship decides to let us have some freedom, there will be nothing left. This is my opinion. I do not like living in a place where they tell me what I can do and what I cannot do. Well, Stafford later mentioned that she would uh, be compiling the Instagram handles of local businesses and posting them to show support and cited a friend losing their business as a source of her frustration. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're winding our way through some of the top headlines of the day. In the next couple of segments, we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. And then again, in the five o'clock hour, we'll uh, hear our interview of the week with Reverend Moore, co-author of The Next Jihad, Stop Christian Genocide in Africa. Well, France is seeking to uh, grant an Oscar for the pedophilia movie Cuties, the very film that had millions abandoning Netflix over the film's sexualization of preteen girls. Well, the judge has dismissed an Arizona GOP lawsuit seeking an audit of county ballots, and the Trump campaign withdrew the Michigan election lawsuit. Biden is still ahead by 12,000 votes after the now complete Georgia recount. Biden declares there will be no national shutdown. He also discussed a national mask mandate with governors across the country. Palestinians are eagerly uh, eagerly anticipating a Biden reset, by which they mean anti-Israel policies. Nearly a third of Democrats believe the election has uh, was stolen from Trump, and the push to cancel student loan debt completely ignores the reason college is so expensive. Well, Trump's tax write-offs are ensnared in two New York fraud investigations, and a Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac overseer is seeking to end federal control. 
Well, Pfizer is applying for emergency authorization of its vaccine today. And the CDC director says schools are among the safest places kids can be. New York government is being slammed by critics for closing schools, but not indoor dining. Well, hypocrite Gavin Newsom is ordering a one-month curfew in California with exceptions, his rich actor friends. Georgia's Floyd uh, Floyd County terminates their election director after a state audit uncovers uncounted votes. And birds of a feather, the Huffington Post is being sold to BuzzFeed. The U.S. Treasury Secretary is declining to extend several emergency lending programs. And stranger than fiction, Pizza Hut is creating a a giant pizza blanket. It sold out in hours. Hmm. The New York City Fight Club was broken up by the cops for not social distancing. And the Peanuts holiday special to air on PBS after public laments its removal, back on. Critics are roasting Rudy Giuliani for an apparent hair dye mishap. And chalk uh, sketch found in Italy could be a da Vinci depiction of Christ. Story is developing. Well, this day in history, 1985, the first version of Microsoft's Windows operating system, Windows 1.0, is officially released. 1789, New Jersey becomes the first state to ratify the Bill of Rights. 1969, the Nixon administration announces a halt to residential use of the pesticide DDT as part of a total phase out. In 1998, 46 states embrace a $206 billion settlement with cigarette makers over health costs for treating sick smokers. Also in this day in history, 2000, lawyers for Al Gore and George W. Bush battle before a Florida Supreme Court over whether the presidential election recount should be allowed to continue. So it is not unprecedented that the challenge continues under the current administration, although the window toward uh, success in a second term is narrowing. Well, as mentioned, Joe Biden uh, has won the presidential race in Georgia. The presidential race was called for President-elect Joe Biden on Thursday night, officially awarding him the state's 16 electoral votes and widening his lead over President Trump. The results were determined after the state conducted an audit of nearly 5 million votes cast by residents. Well, President uh, presumed President-elect Joe Biden turned 78 today. In two months, he'll be, uh, he uh, may take the reins of a politically fractured nation facing the worst public health crisis in a century, high unemployment and a reckoning on racial injustice, or at least the movement um, focusing on racial injustice. Well, as he wrestles with these issues, he's going to be attempting to accomplish another feat, demonstrate to Americans that the age is but a number and he's up for the job. Half of Democrats prior to the election believed he wasn't up to the job and that his vice president would uh, uh, end up leading the country before the first year. Biden will be sworn in as the oldest president of the nation's history if his election is certified, displacing Ronald Reagan, who left the White House in 1989 when he was 77 and 349 days old. Well, the age and health of both Biden and President Donald Trump, less than four years uh, Biden's junior, loomed throughout the race that was decided by a younger and more divisive um, uh, electorate and at a moment when the nation is facing no shortage of issues of consequence. Out of the gate, Biden will be keen to demonstrate he's got the vigor to serve. He was pretty well protected by the media throughout the campaign season. Uh, It's critical that he and his staff put himself in the position early in his presidency where he can express what he wants with a crispness that's not always been his strength. The political scientist at Rutgers University points out who has advised legislators uh, from both parties. He has got to build up credibility with the American people that he's physically and mentally up for the job, which makes uh, 
vice president-elect, presumptively, uh, Kamala Harris, the most consequential vice president in recent history. A large contingent of Willamette Valley lawmakers are urging Governor Kate Brown this week to immediately increase testing in the face of Oregon's huge spike in coronavirus cases. The 32 current and soon-to-be members of the House um, and Senate, including more than two dozen Democrats and Republican House leaders, spelled out in stark terms how far Oregon's rate of testing lags nearly all U.S. states, including neighboring Washington and California, even as Oregon's test positivity rate outranks theirs. Well, they wrote and sent their letter Monday, one day after the Oregonian Oregon Live published a front-page story detailing the state's failure to expand testing, with the number of people now being tested barely above levels from July. Like the article, their letter pointed uh, to Oregon's number 49 ranking by a nationally trusted source for per capita COVID-19 testing. Even without e- enough testing, the state is now identifying an average of nearly 990 new cases a day, by far its highest rate during the pandemic. We cannot afford to continue with the current testing system in place today, the lawmakers wrote to uh, the governor, a Democrat. Oregonians need certainty and they need access to testing. Well, the state uh, health agency, Brown Overseas, should provide uniform statewide guidelines for who can be tested and should make it easy for Oregonians in all counties to find where they can get tested, um, the lawmakers argued. Well, as mentioned earlier, Pfizer has announced that it will file a request on Friday with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for emergency use authorization for its coronavirus vaccine. The request comes after phase three clinical studies showed Pfizer's vaccine to be 95 percent effective in preventing the disease associated with coronavirus. Says Pfizer CEO and chairman Dr. uh, Albert Bauerla. Uh, in a uh, in a statement on Friday, our work to deliver a safe and effective vaccine has never been more urgent as we continue to see an alarming rise in the number of cases of COVID-19 globally. Filling the U.S. Um, filling in the U.S. Uh, represents a critical milestone in our journey to deliver a COVID-19 vaccine to the world. And we now have a more complete picture of both the efficacy and the safety profile of our vaccine, giving us confidence in its potential. Well, the drug maker, end quote, the drug Drugmaker said it will be ready to distribute the vaccine within hours after authorization and plans to produce up to 50 million doses around the world by the end of the year and up to 1.3 billion doses by the end of next year. And of course, uh, Pfizer is one of two companies that have announced they are on the cusp of um, seeking that same authorization. So uh, rather, rather interesting. Well, Pray.com uh, has been downloaded uh, more than one million times. Uh, they offer a Christian faith app that's been downloaded, uh, well, over a million times. It's been leaking user data, researchers from cybersecurity firm VPM Mentor says. Well, the Pray app is designed for daily prayer, Bible stories, Christian meditation, according to the app's download page. It's been incredibly popular since launching in 2016. Um, Prayer.com's developers failed to properly secure vast amounts of data, however, data collected from the app. Uh, The researchers say that they've discovered four misconfigured Amazon Web Services, S3 buckets, and identified Prey.com as the owner. Well, that resulted in many of the files stored within them being publicly accessible to anyone with access to the bucket's URL, which is easily obtainable. Through uh, further investigation, they learned that Prey.com had uh, protected some files, setting them as uh, private on the bucket uh, to limit access. 
Well, the researchers added that they have no way of verifying whether data has actually been leaked. We have no evidence and no way of knowing whether the data in our reports has been accessed or leaked by anyone else. Only the database owner can know that, the cybersecurity firm said. Well, what we do know now is that unless the problem has been remedied, those who would be attend, who would tend to try to hack that kind of information now know that it's available to them. So I'm hoping that this public announcement came after um, VPN Mentor was able to resolve the situation. But apparently, Prey app has been uh, downloaded more than a million times and access to vital customer information has been available since then, leaking, as they say, user, user data. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And as promised, we're going to take a brief look at the lighter side of the news. Now, one of the things I like to look at is the possibility that things could be worse. And the sun has set in an Alaskan city. It's descending into 66 days of polar night. Now, I know they're used to it there. This is in the northernmost American city. They're used to it there, but the thought of being... Uh, quarantined in a pandemic and having 66 um, days of polar night, it could be worse. So at least we have that to be grateful for. Well, the sun set for the last time this year in this remote Alaskan city on Wednesday, marking the start of those 66 days. You know, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, when we're in the office, I mean, even though we have windows to the outdoors, uh, it does feel like we arrive under the scope of darkness and we leave under the scope of darkness because of the hours of the show. And uh, sometimes I feel like we have 66 straight days of darkness. Um, But it is punctuated by light in between. It is punctuated by light in between, but uh, not as much of it as I'd like, certainly. Yeah, not uh, not as much. Well, from the It Could Be Worse department, this uh, little town is located north of the Arctic Circle on the coast of uh, Chukchi Sea. I can't pronounce the the, uh, name of the town. It was formerly known as Barrow. It's the northernmost American city. The city has about 4,429 residents, according to its website. And although the city is a modern community, subsistence, hunting, fishing, and whaling are still very important to the local economy, it says. Many residents who work full or part-time continue to hunt and fish for much of their food. So it's um, a town I wouldn't mind visiting, not during those 66 days, but you know when there's a little light in town. Sounds like a... Sounds like a plan. Well, I've come up with an explanation as to why this whole election thing has yet to be settled. Well, actually, I didn't. The Babylon Bee had a very funny headline. Uh, Pennsylvania election results delayed until 2022 due to use of Common Core math to tally votes. (laughs) I think that might be a a good way of looking at it. Here's what they write. Election officials in Pennsylvania uh, warned that uh, they may not have results for the presidential election until sometime after 2021 due to the use of Common Core math to tally votes. We want to make sure that all the votes are counted in the slowest, most ridiculous way possible, so we'll be using Common Core math. A quote from Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf. Again, this is tongue-in-cheek. Um, they had a lot of success causing confusion in the Iowa caucuses by using Common Core, so that's what we want to do. The Common Core vote counting process involves grouping the ballots in sets of six, then finding which set feels more like five, then seeing how many hundreds are in between the sets, then dropping a large um, item. (laughs) I've got to read that. And then scribbling a few numbers down and say, this is reasonable because science. 
Common Core. We decided to use Common Core math this year in solidarity with uh, all those poor kids uh, we're making do it in schools, and it's uh, been a real struggle, Pennsylvania elections director Smitty Finkelbottoms says. I mean, I've been trying to teach my 10-year-old how to do the basics for almost a year now. Uh, This could take some time. Well, teaching the new method could take longer than actually doing the counting. We want to emphasize that this isn't a problem with reporting, Finkelbottom says. It's just that nobody knows how to do the uh, common core math thing. So there's an explanation from the Babylon Bee. They're using common core. uh, Therefore, we may never know the outcome of the election. Again, Babylon B, satire, tongue in cheek. You know, I've never been a big math person overall, though my, my mom growing up used to tell me I would need math every day of my life. And, uh, you know, apart from uh, anything above absolute basic algebra, she was wrong, thankfully. But uh, <laughs> the rest of it, absolutely correct. Uh, but uh, the, the thing about it is I knew at some point I probably would come into a problem with my own child about uh, you know, common core math because it's going to find its way in somehow. And I can I, I can say with certainty I have already been completely stymied by kindergarten common core math. <laughs> and she's five. <laughs> yep, I I am of no benefit to her whatsoever in anything. I could not figure it out. I looked at it. I stared at it. I tried turning the paper upside down uh, and sideways didn't help didn't help i just i just kind of said um yeah go talk to your mom it's apparently not so common no well a smooth transition that's what we're all hoping for and while there's there are questions uh, pertaining to the outcome of the election that persist that doesn't mean there's not going to be a smooth transition the vote doesn't need to be certified until december but uh, all that said a japanese mask maker didn't have any difficulty with a smooth transition they've dumped the trump masks and they've embraced the biden masks uh, for a mask producer in Japan, that transition from President Trump to um, presumptive nominee Joe Biden has been a smooth one as it switches production to masks of the Democrat president-elect. Uh, Agawa Studios, it's a small producer uh, in North Tokyo. They started making rubber Biden masks earlier this year, but since his election win last week, it has uh, ramped up production. Well, presumptive, we would say here. In October alone, 1,000 Biden masks were sold for 2,400 yen or $22.81 each. And the company has set a goal of producing further uh, 25,000 by the end of the year, which is, you know, when we know for sure who the president will be. Meanwhile, the Trump masks, which cost the same, have been relegated to the bottom of the company's production line. Ogawa studio managers say that... uh, It was much easier to produce a caricature of Trump, whose mask appears to be shouting, than it is for Biden. Biden's caricature is much more low-key with a gentle smile. We didn't have any background information on Biden, so it was hard to grasp his character, although he's been around for some 50-plus years. But we especially paid close attention to the corner of his eyes and his mouth to make it. Well, the real-life Biden continues to lay the groundwork for his administration, what he hopes will be his administration against the backdrop of a resurgence of COVID-19 cases across the U.S., while Trump refuses to accept the election's outcome until the game is over. And it ain't over, they're telling us, until it's over. So you can get the Biden mask now in Japan. They have settled it, and there's been a smooth transition. Wow, that's 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 impressive that the Biden mask is, you know, is now um, out because, I mean, you know, Halloween's past. When are you gonna? You know, what's your? Yeah, what's your? 
what's your opportunity to wear it now? First of all, that was a uh, you know probably the last uh, social gathering of the decade, um, <laughs> and <laughs> typically speaking, we don't do dress up any other time of the year. So, uh, it, it, I mean, I guess if you want to scare people who live in your house in the middle of the night, waking them up and saying "boo." But uh, other than that, I can't think of anything you'd use any type of mask for other than, well, going to the grocery store. Yeah, we wear every day. (laughs) Well, the elf on the shelf is quarantined. And there was a a joke on Facebook that went viral, many calling it brilliant. In fact, adults are applauding this hilarious uh, hack of the uh, pesky chore of um, holiday season, putting the elf on the shelf and moving it periodically. Well, it's one less thing to worry about, they're telling us. Parenting during the pandemic is no easy feat, and adults are applauding a hilarious hack uh, to cross one pesky chore off their list by sending the elf on the shelf into quarantine. Well, the popular or not-so-popular Christmas Troy, I happen to think he's a little creepy, uh, which parents secretly wrote around the house before the 25th of December, comes with a book instructing little ones to be on their best behavior during the Christmas season as the elf is watching to report back to Santa. Again, creep factor. Youngsters seem to love their tradition. Parents say that shifting the elf around every day eventually becomes something of a hassle, inspiring a practical hack uh, to make life easier and maintain the Christmas magic this year. Uh, The elf on the shelf will need to quarantine for 14 days after his trip from the North Pole. Facebook user Hillary Soraya, she recently joked, sharing a photo of the elf doll wearing a face mask and a snow globe like mason jar. Well, the toy was uh, armed to fight COVID-19 with miniature bottles of hand sanitizer and Lysol. And that was one thing checked off of her Christmas list. No need to move the little creepy elf around. You guys do that at your house? The elf Oh, the golly, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're, they're, I, I, I am of the same ilk. I believe the elf is creepy looking. Uh, I don't, it feels like it's staring at me when I see it in the stores. Uh, and I, I'm glad to not participate for that reason. I don't think that my daughter is aware of it at this point, although sometimes those things surprise me, and it turns out she is. But uh, she's not asked for one at this point, so I have not addressed it. But uh, I'm, I'm happy to say that we are elf-free at this time. Well, my thinking is, why have an elf on the shelf when you have Governor Brown in the window, you know, watching your every move? So we've sort of exchanged one thing for the other. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're winding our way through some of the lighter side of the news. We'll continue in just a moment, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're taking a look at some of the lighter side of the news. Coming up in the second hour of today's program, we'll look at the serious headlines and then share our interview of the week with Reverend Moore. He's the co-author of The Next Jihad, Stop Christian Genocide in Africa. And we'll take a look at why November 21st is so important. All of that coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, just before the break, we were talking about uh, Governor Brown and her showing up uh, at your home like the elf on the shelf, watching every move you make under this uh, new pause, as it's been referred to. Um, James just brought to my attention a piece about what's going on in New York. One upstate company wants Governor Cuomo to be the biggest turkey at your Thanksgiving dinner this year. The Buffalo-based design firm Custom 716, they're selling stickers of the governor's face that can be put on a window to make it look like Cuomo is peering inside, presumably to make sure um, not too many people are there to celebrate 
celebrate the holiday this year. The sticker is a clear way of ripping Cuomo for demanding the New York families avoid gathering in large groups for the holiday out of fears of spreading COVID. Uh, Great for all gatherings, sure to get laughs, great for your business or your home. Uh, They write of the $10 sticker on their firm's website. $10 and I will mail it to you for free or pick it up as available. Uh, Located on North Tawanda, New York, the description reads, offering the promo code allowing customers to bypass the $8.05 shipping and handling fee. I don't know why somebody in Oregon hasn't come up with this yet, but but you were just mentioning you would so place Governor Brown in your window if they were available, these stickers. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, being as I have family over in Vancouver as well, I could I could even see getting an Inslee as well and putting them side by side (laughs) or in different windows just to make sure that we're fully, fully compliant. (laughs) Well, somebody had a great idea and they're marketing on this whole uh, isolation deal. Well, you know, we were um, lamenting the fact that Peanuts holiday specials were not going to air this year because Apple TV was the only place you could. Uh, see them. And of course, that requires a subscription. The iconic Peanuts cartoon holiday specials are now going to air on public television this year, despite early reports that only Apple TV Plus uh, would show them. Following that announcement in October about the special's removal, lots of people protested on social media and on other platforms. One person who advocated for the Charlie Brown holiday specials is Michael Nebbia, who started an online petition to bring back Uh, the broadcast to TV. More than 262,000 people had signed the petition as of late Thursday. Well, PBS said in their statement, Peanuts fans will uh, will have even more ways to watch Charlie Brown, Snoopy, and the gang on their holiday adventures as Apple and PBS team up for a special ad-free broadcasts of a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving and a Charlie Brown Christmas. Uh, PBS and PBS Kids will show the Thanksgiving special on the 22nd and the Christmas special on December 13th, which, by the way, happens to be my mother's 90th birthday. Apple TV subscribers, you can figure that out for yourselves. But anyway, there is going to be at least one location on one occasion in which these two uh, television specials featuring Charlie Brown will be available for the rest of us. So that's good news. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's with the Charlie Brown special. I mean, it you know that it sounds weird in this day and age to only have uh, uh, you know one airing, but it's like no, that's what it always was. It was just yeah, you had yeah, to, you had to catch TV. it. It it reminds me of uh, um, throughout the um, you know the various holidays. I mean, my my daughter loves uh, you know Charlie Brown Christmas, and I I'm sure at least once or twice I have found her watching it in the middle of the summer. Something we never could have done. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, have you heard about the 75-foot-tall Christmas tree in New York's Rockefeller Center? It's getting pretty pretty bad reviews. Oof. But one thing you may not have heard about is that there was a tiny owl found inside that Christmas tree. Uh, it made it, uh, they made an unexpected discovery among the branches. Well, the director and founder of uh, Ravensbeard's Wildlife Center in New York uh, said she received a call this week from the wife of a man who was part of the crew tasked with preparing the 75-foot Norway spruce for display outside the New York City complex. Well, the woman told uh, her that uh, her husband had found a baby owl inside the tree, but uh, the rehabilitator said she soon discovered the raptor actually was an adult, a northern sawwet, a species of owl that typically grows to only about five inches high. Um, so the owl is now in, a, in the care of the Wildlife Center, which said that the bird will be returned to the wild once it receives a clean bill of health. From a veterinarian. So one bright spot in this uh, otherwise Charlie Bound Christmas tree 
uh, at the Rockefeller Center this year. Yeah, it's, I mean, as somebody who grew up in New York and has routinely watched the lighting, even in the years since leaving, I mean, I have a, I do have a special affinity for the, the tree at Rockefeller Center. And actually, went, I've only got to see it once in 2001, got to see it in person, stand right under it. I don't think mm-hmm. I'd want to stand under this one because I think I'd get needled. Because it just seems to be shedding uh, fiercely. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it does. It's, it's pretty right. bad. It, it's yeah. but as somebody said, it really is the perfect tree for 2020. <laughs> Absolutely. And once they put the decorations up, much like Charlie Brown, it will be an entirely different tree. Absolutely. She says, by faith. Well, four astronauts arrived at the International Space Station this week with a peculiar stowaway on board. You'll like this, James. I find him to be creepy. Baby Yoda. A plush toy version of the beloved <laughs> character joined the SpaceX Crew-1, uh, their, t- their flight as uh, Team Zero-G Indicator. Well, zero-gravity indicators are small objects that are allowed to float freely around the cabin to confirm when the spacecraft has entered lower gravity. Uh, we've got Baby Yoda on board trying to take a seat right now, NASA's communications specialist said during the live stream of the historic launch, which marked the first operational flight of a commercially developed crew, Dragon Capsule. Maybe Baby Yoda's trying to pilot the vehicles, as another uh, referring to the plushie as it landed in the astronaut's seat. Baby Yoda says you guys can come back on board, Glover told Mission Control after entering the zero gravity, indicating the uh, cameras could be turned on inside the cabin. Maybe Yoda making its uh, first, well, I suppose Yoda is supposed to be from somewhere else, but making its first uh, appearance on a SpaceX mission to the International Space Station. I thought you'd appreciate that, James. Well, you know, the Baby Yodas get around because wasn't there a Baby Yoda that was also uh, going from camp to camp amongst the firefighters in Oregon fighting the forest fires a few months ago? I seem to remember a story like that. I was blissfully ignorant of the fact since I find Baby Yoda to be distasteful. <laughs> yes, we, we, we know. You are literally the only person <laughs> only on one. the planet that does not think that Baby Yoda is so cute. Well, earlier this year, NASA astronauts, they brought as their indicator a sequined dinosaur named Tremor. On the first flight of an American spacecraft carrying NASA astronauts launching, uh, launching rather from U.S. soil since the space shuttle completed its final mission in 2011, the toy became an Internet sensation, quickly selling out in stores across the U.S. Baby Yoda, I'm guessing, will uh, experience a similar surge in popularity. Interesting. Well, I have a couple of things to mention. Guinness Book of World Records has now added some new names. A Chinese boy celebrated his 14th birthday by becoming certified as the world's tallest teenager by Guinness World Record. Seven feet tall. Didn't have to do anything but just keep breathing. And a a Guinness World Record marked Wednesday's Guinness Records Day by announcing three new records set by players for the Harlem Globetrotters. Uh, They celebrated the special day Wednesday with a 24 hours of record-breaking event online. Um, uh, Globetrotter Rochelle Wham Middleton broke the sec- uh, broke the record for farthest behind the back basketball shot uh, when he sank a, a basket from 45 feet six inches away. The record-keeping organization said uh, teammate DeAndre Dragon Taylor broke the record for highest throw and catch of a spinning basketball, 20 feet one inch, and Lucius Too Tall Winston broke the record for the most bounced basketball fi- uh, figure, eight moves in one minute. With 62, the feats brought the total Guinness records held by Harlem Globetrotters to 24. And then a United Arab Emirates woman broke a Guinness World Record when she visited all seven continents in three days, 14 hours, 
46 minutes, 48 seconds. Finally, an Egyptian scuba diver is believed to have set a new world record by remaining underwater for nearly six entire days. Saddam al-Khilani, 29, plunged into the Red Sea off the Dahab coast and remained underwater for more than 145 hours, surpassing his own goal of 121 hours. So the world is made better with these new Guinness World Record holders. You know, Congratulations the- all. One of the things that uh, struck me a couple of years ago, I had a friend um, who was working at the time for the uh, Harlem Globetrotters on tour and mm-hmm. um, invited me and my wife to come out and say hello, of course, and, and enjoy the Globetrotters. I hadn't gone since I was a kid. I hadn't watched them you know, since uh, you know, the wide world of sports on ABC. So, I mean, you know, it had been a while. And I think the thing that struck me, besides the fact that I was probably a little too old for their level of entertainment, but it was still fun, was that... My goodness, the talent on yeah. and how they play. I mean, they these are. I mean, they're they're funny entertainers, but they are athletes and they have serious skills. And so the fact that a couple of them have Guinness book uh, Guinness book holders, I cannot say not at all surprised. They're deserving of it. They are that good. Yeah, and the team overall, twenty four said records. Hey, we're out of time. We're going to take a quick break for news and traffic at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll take a look at a few of the uh, more serious headlines and share our interview of the week with Reverend Moore. He's the co-author of The Next Jihad, Stop Christian Genocide in Africa. We'll also share why November 21st, that's tomorrow, is so important. Coming up on The Georgine Rice Show, news and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. We're going to share our interview of the week later this hour with Reverend Moore. He's the co-author of The Next Jihad, Stop Christian Genocide in Africa. We'll also talk about why November 21st is important. All of that coming up this hour. President Donald Trump campaigns, uh, President Trump's campaign team, rather, on Thursday, released some new affidavits alleging election irregularities while also making serious accusations of nationally coordinated fraud by local election officials to obscure a Trump landslide. Well, a press conference led by former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani and held at Republican National Committee headquarters in Washington went well over 90 minutes and proved to be as fiery as it was lengthy. President Trump won by a landslide. We are going to prove it, Trump campaign lawyer Sidney Powell, a former federal prosecutor, said at one point. The legal team said it will present evidence in new court cases asking judges to for restraining orders and temporary injunctions to block certification of the election results in several close battleground states where former Vice President Joe Biden currently leads Donald Trump. Time is critical as states have until the 8th of December to certify their vote in the presidential race. The Electoral College will meet on December 14th to elect a president. Some key highlights from that press conference. Uh, the most significant claim uh, made by Giuliani was that affidavits obtained by the president's legal team will provide enough evidence to overturn the election. Major media outlets call the election for Biden on the 7th of November, saying that he was projected to win more than the necessary 270 votes in the Electoral College. Well, the former mayor said the fraud was clear in Democrat-run cities in Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. We have more than double the number of votes needed to overturn the election in terms of provable illegal ballots, Giuliani said, of cities in the six states. All you got to do is find out if I'm misleading you uh, at um, at all is uh, to look 
at the lawsuits. Look what's alleged. Look at the affidavits. Maybe we can supply more affidavits in order to do it. I have to get permission from the people. Well, Giuliani said most of those who agreed to sign affidavits feared threats and other harassment if their names became public through the media. Trump's legal team said it had has 220 sworn affidavits from residents across multiple states. The ones made public are from residents in Pennsylvania and Michigan. However, all the affidavits would be part of the court record. Giuliani said the campaign's investigators also found evidence of fraud in New Mexico and Virginia. According to one affidavit, a supervisor told Michigan election workers not to request photo identification from voters, which is required by law. Another affidavit claims that election workers in Pennsylvania were instructed to assign ballots without names to random people. This resulted in thousands of Pittsburgh residents showing up to vote, only to be told that they already were marked as having voted, the lawyer said. One election supervisor in Michigan told workers, according to a third affidavit, to alter the dates on mail-in ballots to make it appear here, the ballots had arrived earlier. Giuliani said that as many as 100,000 absentee ballots should have been disqualified in Wisconsin, a number that easily would give the state to Trump. Trump also should have carried Pennsylvania by 300,000 votes, he said. Another element that they uh, talked about uh, saying that Trump won in a landslide. Powell described the problems with the Dominion voting systems, a manufacturer of voting machines, and what she said were the company's ties to the socialist government of Venezuela. This is stunning, heartbreaking, infuriating, and the most unpatriotic act I have even imagined for people in this country to have participated in any way, shape, or form. That's a quote from Powell of the alleged wide-scale fraud adding, I want the American public to know right now we will not be intimidated. American patriots are fed up with the corruption from the local level to the highest levels of our government. We are not going to be intimidated. We are not going to back down. We are going to clean this mess up. President Trump won by a landslide. We are going to prove it, end quote. Powell alleged the massive influence of communist money from Venezuela, Cuba, and likely China to interfere in the U.S. election. She added that no one should want a coronation of a president under these suspect circumstances. There should never be another election in this country. I don't care if it's for dog catcher using a Dominion machine and Smartmatic software, Powell said. Well, Dominion, we've talked about that this week. Uh, Voting Systems entered a 2009 contract with Smartmatic, which builds and implements electronic voting systems and provided it with optical scanners used in the 2010 election in the Philippines Access Wire reported. Well, lawsuits in the Philippines uh, ensued over glitches and allegations of fraud. An independent review of source codes used in the, me- uh, the machines found numerous problems, saying the software inventory provided by Smartmatic is inadequate, which brings into question the software credibility, end quote. Well, Smartmatic chairman uh, is a member of the British House of Lords. He also is a member of the global board of the Soros-founded Open Society Foundations, according to the Associated Press. And in a response to a request for comment from the Daily Signal, Dominion referred to information from a press release it issued earlier this week, saying there have been no raids of Dominion servers by the U.S. military or otherwise, and Dominion does not have servers in Germany, the release said, adding later, Dominion and Smartmatic do not collaborate in any way and have no um, affiliate uh, relationship or financial ties. Dominion does not use Smartmatic software. The only associations the company have ever had were and then left uh, with a list. Well, in 2009, Smartmatic licensed Dominion machines for use in the Philippines. The contract ended in a lawsuit, and that's a part of what's being alleged now. In 2010, they purchased certain assets 
uh, from Sequoia, a private U.S. company. Uh, Smartmatic, a previous owner of Sequoia, purchased legal actions against uh, rather pursued them against Dominion. So again, questions being raised about that. Another issue raised in this challenge, Biden's Freudian slip. Giuliani noted that the danger of mail-in voting has been cited by much such liberal sources as former President Jimmy Carter, a Democrat, former Supreme Court Justice David Souter, and the New York Times. This is the first time we did it in mass, and I think we've proven that all three are prophets, Giuliani said, of voting by mail. It's not only susceptible to fraud, it's easily uh, susceptible to fraud, particularly if you had a plan or scheme that sounds eerily similar to what Joe Biden told us a few days before the election, that he had the best voter fraud team in the world. I'm certain he didn't use quite that wording. Well, in late October, Biden said, we have put together, I think, the most extensive and inclusive voter fraud organization in the history of American politics. The Biden defenders contended that the Democratic presidential nominee was talking about a voter protection program in his campaign and that he misspoke. Well, Giuliani joked that it was a Freudian slip and speculated that Biden was likely part of the fraud. He later backed away, saying he wasn't sure what Biden is or isn't aware of. Well, the former mayor suggested Biden's assertions about the most extensive uh, such operations in American history could have been an overstatement. Well, they are um, they were good, Giuliani said. I don't know that they were that good because they made significant mistakes like all crooks do. And we caught them. Another issue in the uh, press conference, electoral security mechanisms. Uh, Jenna Ellis, who is the Trump campaign senior legal advisor, noted that based on the alleged conduct by election officials, it's uh, in, crit- in uh, cities such as Detroit and Philadelphia, voter fraud might not be the best term. When we talk about voter fraud, it's uh, actually election official fraud that cannot stand. The Constitution requires that the state legislatures are the ones who take, who make election laws. What has happened in this case is that state and local level officials and all the way up to uh, all the way up have changed the rules. They want to tear down the American system. Also, there was a quote from my cousin Vinny, if you can imagine, in the press conference and describing how Republican election observers in some cities were kept at too far a distance to watch uh, the ballot counting. Giuliani referred to the 92 uh, film comedy, My Cousin Vinny, uh, staring Joe Pesci as the or rather starring as the hapless New York lawyer. Did you all watch My Cousin Vinny? He said during this press conference, you know, the movie, it's one of my favorite law movies because Vinny comes from Brooklyn. Uh, Giuliani said the former mayor held two fingers up when the nice lady says what she saw. And he uh, says to her, how many fingers do I uh, got up? She says three. Well, she was uh, too far away to see it was only two. Apparently that's part of the film. I'm not familiar with the film. It's not something I uh, have watched. But Giuliani used the movie scene to capture the situation for election observers who have the legal right to watch the counting process for mail-in ballots. Many of them were denied uh, access close enough for that to be the case. He also scolded fake news in the press conference, uh, aggressively uh, going after reporters covering the conference, accusing them of biased coverage and not understanding how legal proceedings work, saying more evidence will come forward in court and that the team's presentation was only like an opening statement. So uh, the Trump team has not given up um, in this uh, controversy as of yet although the windows is narrowing for the president to emerge for a second term. We'll continue to follow the story as it develops, I'm certain, up into next week. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, Reverend Moore, co-author of The Next Jihad, Stop Christian Genocide in Africa. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I've been looking forward to this conversation. The Next Jihad is the title of the book. Well, in an appeal for religious freedom and human rights, my guest and his co-author, both faith leaders and self-described freelance diplomats, Reverend Johnny Moore, my guest, and his co-author, Rabbi Abraham Cooper, they released their new book, The Next Jihad. They expose the everyday horrors that Christian believers face in Nigeria, and the authors spotlight the enduring atrocities of religious persecution and the cost of global inaction. The book is rooted in firsthand testimonials and their on-the-ground experiences. The Next Jihad forewarns us about the dire but largely disregarded threat of terrorism seeking to eradicate Christians in Africa, either by forced conversion to Islam or by murder. The authors uh, contrasting religious backgrounds, more an evangelical Christian and uh, Rabbi Cooper, an Orthodox Jew, make this multi-faith collaboration an especially powerful argument for safeguarding religious tolerance and our shared human um, rights. Reverend Johnny Moore is a noted speaker, author, and human rights activist. He served as the president of Congress of Christian Leaders and is the founder of Kairos Company, one of America's leading boutique communications uh, consultancies. He also is best known for his extensive multi-faith work on the intersection of faith and foreign policy. He serves as a presidential uh, appointee to the United States Commission for International Religious Freedom and sits on many boards. And if I went through the very long list, we wouldn't have time for our interview, so I will leave it at that. But I am just delighted to have you with us, Reverend Johnny Moore. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Georgine. Good to be with you. Well, first of all, let me ask you about your collaboration. You are an evangelical Christian. You've uh, collaborated with a, an Orthodox rabbi, Abraham Cooper. How did the two of you come to this book and this subject? Well, I, I really refer to Rabbi Cooper as my mentor. You know, he, he's uh, someone who's influenced my life uh, in, a, in a great way for a long period of time. Uh, but I met him uh, back in 2017, I believe, maybe late 2016, when the Simon Wiesenthal Center uh, honored uh, a, a project that I was involved in to help rescue Christians from uh, Iraq and Syria. And so I, I, I ended up uh, receiving their Medal of Valor. But aside from that, that single event, I, I found Rabbi Cooper to be literally one of the uh, wisest people I've met on the planet, a, a human rights activist for 50 years. And we began to collaborate all over the world. And actually, Georgine, it was Rabbi Cooper, the Orthodox Jew, that asked me, uh, Johnny Moore, the evangelical Christian, when I was going to go to Nigeria because what was because of all that was happening in Nigeria. So we decided we'd go together. Oh, wonderful. In the introduction, you asked the question, what's going on in Africa? And it's an apt question because most of us don't know. You write that Af- Africa is a continent that takes up much of our globe, but so little of our minds here in the West. It's an incomparably important place on our planet, yet too rarely captures the world's attention. Normally, it does so only during tragedy. There is a tragedy going on right now, a genocide, if you will, that most of us are unaware of. Yeah, and it's been going on for a long time. Uh, back, back when ISIS was at its height in Iraq and Syria in, in 2015, more Christians were dying in northeast Nigeria than Christians or Yazidis that were dying in, in Iraq and Syria. So, so this is, it's not a new crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an ongoing crisis that seems to be escalating, and the numbers are growing, and the world become, is becoming increasingly indifferent. And, you know, I, I, I'm not sure why people won't pay attention to it. But one of the convictions that I have is that the, the best way of sort of awakening the conscience of the world is to tell the stories of the victims. And so right before COVID-19 shut down the world, uh, Rabbi Cooper and I spent several days in, in Abuja 
meeting with dozens and dozens of victims, hearing stories that I knew would be bad. But I, I got to tell you, Georgie, it was much, much worse than I even knew. And it does beg the question, why aren't we hearing about these stories? Uh, the mainstream media's focus is on a lot of different things. We tend to think about terrorism in the Middle East. There's been a national election. We're in the middle of a pandemic. These are kind of current reasons one might uh, look to as to why we're not hearing about what's happening in Nigeria, for example. But how do you explain the, the ignorance, even of the, the Christian community in general, of what's happening there and the threat uh, not only to Nigerians and other uh, African nations, but the threat to Europe, the United States, and other parts of the world. And, and when you add on uh, on top of it, you know, when the media does report on it, they tend to report on it uh, in a in a strange way, where they they won't talk about the religious violence. They'll they'll chop the violence off to climate change or to conflicts between herders and farmers, but they won't mention you know the fact that this is. Uh, often religiously religiously motivated, and and, you know, and by the way, it, it's important to all of us. I mean, Nigeria is the largest co- country, the most populated country in Africa. It has the tenth largest oil reserves in the world. It has the largest economy on the continent, and the countries surrounding it all have their own sort of terrorist insurgency. And so, what's quietly happening on the great continent and its uh, perhaps most influential country? is a catastrophe that 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 could not only uh, you know un, un, you know destabilize that that nation it could destabilize that whole part of of the african continent which would make the syrian crisis look look insignificant uh, compared to what could could happen there but more importantly it's the individual lives you know like the uh, the seminarian michael nadi who earlier this year at 18 years old was kidnapped in the middle of the night found dead on the side of the road. And uh, in the, this was a rare circumstance where they actually caught the perpetrator. And the perpetrator, when, when he was asked why he killed him, he said he killed him because Michael just kept sharing his faith with him and he wouldn't stop and it became annoying. And so he decided to, quote, send him to an early grave. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands of Michael Nadis. I mean, hundreds, hundreds of villages, all the churches destroyed, all the homes burned to the ground, all the animals stolen. Uh, circumstances that particularly alarmed uh, Rabbi Cooper, uh, whom, whom I've written The Next Jihad with, because they, they segmented out communities. They stopped cars on the side of the road and Muslims were freed and Christian men were killed on the spot and the young women were, were trafficked. This is happening every day, every single day including today, right now. Let's talk now about the talking. perpetrators. Who are the perpetrators? What motivates them? And how are they uh, being confronted by anyone to, to prevent this from expanding or moving forward? Yeah, there's, there's three groups. The, the first is Boko Haram. You know, that, that's the group that most people have, have, have heard about. Uh, ironically enough, you know, back in uh, 2013, 2014, the Obama administration, for some strange reason, refused to designate Boko Haram a terrorist organization when they were beheading people, you know, in the in the name of their of, of, of their religious beliefs. Boko Haram is a, is been a, been with us for a long time and hasn't been dealt with for a long time. Then there's ISIS in West Africa, ISIS attempting to reestablish itself in those countries. And then finally, and perhaps most alarmingly, there's a segment of Africa's largest tribe. The, the tribe is called the Fulani. There are mm-hmm. 17 million of them alone in Nigeria. And most Fulani are good, wonderful people. But there's a there's a small group of them, uh, but a small group and a very large group of, 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 of 
people who are appropriating the tactics of Boko Haram and ISIS in West Africa in the center part of Nigeria. So, so this terrorism used to be isolated to the northeast of the country in a you know, rel- relatively small area of a couple of states. But now in the whole center of the country, you have these militant uh, Fulani, a segment of these Fulani tribespeople. You know, who are yelling Allahu Akbar as they attack villages in, in the middle of the night, killing thousands and thousands and thousands of people, displacing tens of thousands more. And ironically enough, uh, in my research, you know, we, we, we discovered that um, on a number of occasions, you know, forensic evidence has been left behind, like rudimentary cell phones from the Fulani militants. And on one of the cell phones uh, was the phone number of a number of, of senior people in the police forces and armed services in, in the country. And so, you know, at a minimum, this great ally of the United States, an important country that we love very much, you know, has has severe corruption, uh, which is inhibiting uh, the, the prosecution of these perpetrators of, of genocide, of ethnic cleansing. I mean, that, that's what they're that, That's the ring. They, they want to take out every Christian in the country and every Muslim that stands in their way. We're talking with Reverend Johnny Moore, who, along with Rabbi Abraham Cooper, co-authored The Next Jihad, Stop the Christian Genocide in Africa. And if you have been unaware of what's happening there, this is an excellent book to become aware and the stakes, not only for those who are directly being targeted, but for the rest of the world as well. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with uh, Reverend Moore, who, along with Rabbi Cooper, co-authored The Next Jihad, Stop Christian Genocide in Africa. Now, our, our temptation is to look at the broad implications of what's happening in Nigeria and elsewhere uh, and to consider how it might somehow be exported uh, outward. But I appreciate that you focus our attention on what's happening to brothers and sisters in Christ on the ground right now, the price they are paying for faithfully following their their faith. And I want to talk about the implications as well, but I think it's important that we look at who's being impacted uh, and targeted by these perpetrators and what they hope ultimately to accomplish. Well, and, and to do so, I, I, the most important and powerful thing is to is to tell their stories. And yes, Georgine, there are a few of them that really touch me. I think there's, one girl, uh, pr- probably many people listening to us have heard this name before, that her, her name is Leah Sherabu. So, so Leah was uh, 14 years old, one of 110 young girls that were kidnapped by, by Boko Haram terrorists in, in Nigeria two and a half years ago. When, when Boko Haram kidnapped them, it, it caused a massive, massive political problem in the country you know, for, the, for the ruling government. They negotiated the release of the 110 girls, uh, it's just that all the parents were waiting for the girls to be released in the buses. Uh, and then one parent, Leah's mom, Rebecca, uh, as she tells the story, was looking around and she couldn't find her daughter. And ev- all the other girls were there, but her daughter wasn't there. And she's getting more and more desperate. And she sees one of Leah's friends. So she want- runs up to Leah's friend. She says, where's Leah? Where's Leah? Where's Leah? And then Leah's friend told her that all of the other girls were freed, but the terrorists wouldn't free Leah because Leah was the only Christian in the group, and Leah refused to convert to Islam. And she said, you can take my life, but I will not change my religion. And this little 14-year-old girl with more faith than most pastors I know stared down these terrorists and remains in captivity today 
just because she would refuse to convert, you know, out of out of Christianity into into Islam. And there's just story after story after story like that. Uh, you know, early earlier this year, you know, a, a famous pastor in the country, in the northeast of the country, uh, was was beheaded on a live video because he would refuse to refuse to convert, and he leaves behind a widow and nine children. And yet they, they hold their testimony as the most important thing in, in, in their life. And so I think a lot of people listening to us think that all of this has sort of gone the way of history, those terrible years of ISIS in Iraq and Syria, this is all gone, but it isn't gone. It's moved to a different part of the world. And, and, and I'm just telling you, if something isn't done, uh, it, it, it's, it's going to affect us all. But, but, but as a believing Christian, you know, I, I have to also say that the strongest, some of the strongest faith I've seen in the world, you know, is, isn't in our gigantic churches in the United States of America or in Western Europe. It, it's, it's, in the, it's in the testimonies of these, these everyday Christians in this persecuted part of Africa's most populated country. Who take their faith seriously and are empowered by the Holy Spirit to stand against those who would seek to destroy their their lives. Um, you write about deadly midnight raids, arson, kidnappings, rapes, forced conversions, overt slaughter. These are horrific stories that one might expect to find in the pages of the Old Testament, and yet in our day, this is what's occurring right now. Uh, failure to respond to this in some constructive way uh, certainly has implication for those who are suffering. Um, but talk a bit about the, the broader implications if this is permitted to go on unchecked, if the world continues to look away, um, what can we expect as a result? We, we can expect a, a humanitarian catastrophe unlike anything that we've seen. And, and that is saying something, having, having just come through the first decade of the Syrian conflict and we watched how that uh, upheaval affected almost the entire world, you know, and, and especially the neighboring countries, countries in Europe. I mean, and, and here's the thing, like, I, I'm not, I'm not here to, you know, to speak badly about Nigeria. I love Nigeria. I mean, these are amazing people. It's an amazing country. Some of the most incredible people in the world. It's an ally of the United States, a critical ally, and it needs to stay that way. But the government in Nigeria, for whatever reason, is choosing not to take the action necessary and they need to be called out on it and that's one of the reasons why we went it's one of the reasons why we've written written the book and it's not just on the united states to to do something it's also on europe you know the united kingdom gives a million dollars a day a million pounds a day rather you know to to the nigerians it's time for all of the aid money given by the united states and the europeans to be evaluated it's time for the united states and the europeans to send a clear message that if the Nigerian government doesn't fulfill its fundamental responsibility of protecting the innocent, then you know it it, it it's going to face consequences for that when it comes to our our relationship. You know, and Georgine, all of this is in a democracy. You know, Nigeria is a democracy. This isn't a totalitarian totalitarian dictatorship. So it's just got to end, and it's got to end right now. And also, you know, it's time for us to pray for these people. I mean, really, really intensely pray for these people, educate ourselves on the issues, give to the organizations that are helping those in need, call our, our politicians, Democrat or Republican, and make sure that this is a priority uh, for, for them. Now is the time to act. We will be forced to act if we don't get our act together. Yeah, we're talking about the book, The Next Jihad, Stop the Christian Genocide in Africa. That's perhaps a great place to start to learn about what the situation is and how those who are 
uh, fellow followers of Jesus, um, how they are suffering. You write about the moral imperative to act, and I think we can all feel that that need to act. What can we uh, What can we do? What can be done to help? Uh, as an average follower of Christ, as an average citizen, um, first of all, we need to be convinced that it's imperative to act. But then, what can we do to help that's going to make a difference? Well, you know, this this is what united uh, the rabbi and I. I mean, we're, you know, he's yes. an Orthodox Jew. I'm a, I'm an evangelical Christian, but we both believe in action. You know, it, compassion requires action. You have to do something about it. You know, and, and in the back of the book, we list a bunch of things that, 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 that can be done. But let me just give, you know, a, a couple of real simple ones. Pray like you hope these people, like you hope someone would pray for you. Educate yourself so you know what's going on, including the stories of the victims. You can tell those those stories. Send an email to your political leader's office today. Just go on the website, find the local leader, and say, "What are you doing about the the crisis in Nigeria?" You know, and and then and then finally, you know, help organizations that are helping helping those in need. You know, the thing about Nigeria is it has a huge Christian population. Every denomination is in Nigeria. The largest assemblies of God. Communities outside of the United States are in are in Nigeria. Like your church has some connection to the country. Like it's time to help those churches in Nigeria cope with the crises that they're they're facing. Now's now's the time to do it. And there are lots of other things that can be done, but those are a, a few quick ones you might remember. Yes, and you'll find them in the book. Let me ask you how the Christian community is faring. Obviously, under this kind of ongoing, relentless pressure and danger, it takes its toll. How is the church in general holding up under this kind of challenge? I mean, this is a miracle, right? I've spent my entire adult life helping persecuted Christians around the world, and I always find, like, I'm the one that's actually helped, you know, in, in the end. I mean, it keeps my faith alive. And I got to tell you, you know, the Nigerian church is strong. You know, I, I met a, a pastor who is on his second burned down church. And he, he, he reminded me of a modern day Apostle Paul. He's not going anywhere. They could, take, they could take his church. They could take any little bit of money he has. They could take his food. They could burn down the building. He's just going to stay caring for those, for those people. So it's a, it's a church that's alive. Well, that's so encouraging. We have a great deal to learn from them, but we also have a great deal we can do to help support them, first by recognizing that moral imperative to act and then to act constructively. Again, the book is titled The Next Jihad, Stop the Christian Genocide in Africa. The book is published by Thomas Nelson. And let me encourage you to read the book to learn more about what's happening in this this country in Africa. And I think I appreciate, too, that you put it in context that the ripple effect if left unchallenged of what's happening there uh, into Europe and other countries, including our own, is uh, certainly sobering as well. The next jihad. Um, Reverend Johnny Moore, thank you so much for your collaboration with Rabbi Cooper and for taking the time to talk with us about this important book today. Thanks for shining a light on it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. We've got news and traffic at the top of the hour. And when we return, we'll talk with Zach Smith. He's a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We'll try to get some understanding, gain some understanding of the lawsuits that are currently pending that uh, has failed to resolve our election. Uh, is it likely or possible that the the outcome could be overturned uh, from what we've been told uh, is the uh, the current outcome? Or just we'll put it all into perspective. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. 
Well, this Saturday, November 21st, 2020, is the 400th anniversary of a banner red letter day in American history. I know American history isn't supposed to be popular, but I think it bears uh, speaking about. On November 21st, 1620, the adult male passengers and crew of the Mayflower hammered out a social contract on how they would govern themselves in the new world. There's a critical historical distinction often missed by modern readers between these pilgrims and the Puritans who came some six years later in larger numbers to found the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Now, these Mayflower pilgrims who made up the majority of the Mayflower passenger list were 17th century revolutionaries. Their theology over the previous century had led them to reject the idea of an official state church and to embrace the vision of the church as a visible local congregation of Christians who had professed a personal relationship with Jesus, thus they're being labeled separatists. Well, in so doing, they invoked the wrath of the king and brought serious persecution down on themselves. Now, according to Dr. B.R. White, the separatists developed ecclesiology's revolutionary implications surprised, but did not deter them from following their theological convictions. The Puritans, by contrast, were mere reformers rather than revolutionaries. They were quite comfortable with an official state-sponsored church model. They just wanted to purify the Church of England of what they call the remaining vestiges of uh, popery, thus the name Puritans. When the Mayflower Compact was written and approved, it became the first organized attempt at self-government in the English-speaking experiment in the New World. These brave refugees from severe religious persecution under King James I set out concisely and deliberately to form what Abraham Lincoln would later call a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And since they didn't believe in an official state-sponsored church, the Mayflower Compact inaugurated secular civil government without any ties to the particular religious view other than monotheism and protecting uh, freedom of conscience. Well, the Mayflower uh, Compact thus became, in truth, America's Magna Carta, the basis for the self-governing constitutional republic we are destined were destined to become. Well, this form of government was planted in the original American DNA from the beginning. There is a direct line of descent from the Mayflower Compact in 1620 to the Declaration of Independence in 1776 and the U.S. Constitution in 1787. Now, the Mayflower Compact is a far better place to look for the origin of America's founding rather than the fanciful 1619 date from the delusional New York Times 1619 project which even the author admitted was not intended to be history. It was something of a fanciful work of fiction. Well, may we all pause to reflect on the priceless heritage of self-government and liberty, an experiment still in the making, bequeathed to us, and may we all resolve to pass it on undiminished to future generations. We have so much to be grateful for. This is just one example of one thing among many. Well, next week is Thanksgiving, and of course, Our version of Thanksgiving has been redefined by government officials uh, in their effort to try to reduce the number of cases of COVID-19 amidst the flurry of activity, uh, misinformation, misleading information, lack of data, lack of tests, and so on. We are being asked to protect ourselves and others by wearing masks, social distance, and to keep our celebrations down to manageable numbers of six or fewer in the state of Oregon. And my understanding is in Washington, even fewer 
than that. It is an entirely different approach to Thanksgiving as we have practiced it over at least our lifetimes. Um, I'm planning on going shopping later today to get all of the fixins for a traditional Thanksgiving meal. Not certain that I'm going to be able to find all of the elements that we have come to know and love for Thanksgiving. Uh, people have returned to hoarding, although we're repeatedly told it's not necessary. I'm grateful that Thanksgiving doesn't require toilet paper because who knows, it may not be available in the places I plan to go later today. I'm trying to avoid shopping on Saturday and Sunday because I anticipate that it's going to be a madhouse as uh, grocery stores are now required to limit the number of people allowed in the facility at one time. And that may require long lines leading up to the front door and empty shelves on the other side of those doors. So it's going to be a very different season. Now, I've already determined that while I'm very disappointed that uh, we can't get together as a full extended family, there are 13 of us. And that's not possible. We've decided to divide, divide ourselves into two groups um, in which we'll have the appropriate numbers uh, to gather together. So I'm grateful for that. I'm planning on having a traditional meal, but I'm not at all sure that that's going to be possible. What I am sure of is the fact that we can come together. We can reflect not only on our nation's history and uh, expressing thanksgiving for the freedoms that we enjoy in this country, and the freedoms I hope that we will continue to enjoy beyond this pandemic and through the next political seasons. But I am absolutely certain that we will celebrate with gratitude and thanksgiving the God who has given us every breath, the God who's given us his word, has promised his presence, has forgiven our sins and given us um, the righteousness of Christ, uh, who has given us his Holy Spirit so that we might walk before him in a way that's pleasing to him. There is so much to be grateful for uh, that goes beyond the elements of this country that we have so often taken for granted because of the freedom that we have enjoyed. Now, we have a right to expect those freedoms. We have a right to expect that we will be fully, those freedoms will be fully restored uh, at some point in the not too distant future. That is our rightful expectation. That is our inheritance but given where we happen to be today and now, we need to be grateful for what we do have. The fact that technology makes it possible for our churches to come together, that we can see one another face to face through that same technology, that we can attend church, although it not shoulder to shoulder, but in ways that um, uh, still give us an opportunity to gather around God's word, to worship as a family, to be the body of Christ, that he's given us opportunity to minister to our neighbors maybe only by living as men and women of peace uh, and joy that really surpasses understanding under our circumstances. So this weekend, I plan to prepare for the holiday to come. I might even put the Christmas lights up, although I vow they won't be turned on until the day after Thanksgiving. But I'm going to do it all with joy and a face mask and socially distanced from my neighbors because um, the source of joy does not come from a government edict or mandate or the absence of a pandemic or um, good health or prosperity. It comes from knowing God. He is the greatest gift for which we can all express gratitude with great thanksgiving. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank Dan Rice for the use of his office. We're grateful that you made the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Hope you'll have a great weekend and will join us right back here on Monday. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show.
and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.